This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane, and today uh, our guest is M. Quinton Williams. Um, Q, I was looking through your background, and I don't even know where to start, man. Like, you were a former FBI agent. You used to work in the NFL. Uh, you've got, you know, run community efforts. Like, your background's crazy. How do you, do you sleep? Do you, do you take a rest? What do you, how, how does this even work? So nice of you. I, I do. I do sleep. I I have a great village of people. I've always had this village, people who are around me, and they contribute so much to my life. And that's what makes this possible. This is this isn't about me. It's about the village of people, and it's about society. Yeah, it's uh, and what you're doing is is fantastic. So I guess at the beginning, I'd like to just kind of hand the floor over to you. you grew up in Yonkers you went to BC became an FBI agent like can you walk people through your very unique background and I'm really interested in getting into you know what you're what you're up to now so floor is yours my friend <laughs> thank you thank you Rob I appreciate it well yeah I, I mean it all started on the island of St. Thomas with me that's where I was born I, I wasn't born on the mainland oh okay. and I was, yeah and I was born there because my mother she was um being abused by somebody in her household and at some point in her young young adult life she said I, I just don't want to take it anymore and so she escaped to St. Thomas. My mother was a flower child. She was just a great a great person, is a great person because she's still alive and <laughs> doing really well in Jacksonville, Florida. And so she went to St. Thomas and met my biological father, got pregnant by him and he took off very quickly after he found out. And so she was there by herself, to there to raise me all by herself, uh, really not much in terms of resources at her disposal. And at some point after some more trauma on the island of St. Thomas, she decided to go back to New York where she was from. Her parents had a nice little house in East Chester, New York. And so she went back hoping to rekindle the relationship with her parents because they had disowned her for leaving. Um, and then when they found out, my mother's a white Jewish woman, when they found out that she was dating a black guy, was pregnant with a black kid, didn't add any, any positive vibes to that relationship to say the least. And so for the first five years of my life, there wasn't really a connection with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Uh, but at about six years old, uh, my grandmother, my grandfather always loved me and was always proud. But my grandmother had some issues because she was 
brought up in a foster care system and she was just she had a lot of shame she was dealing with in her life and to have my mother have a baby out of wedlock and it's a black baby it just didn't sit right with her so uh she disowned us for those first five years and then made a 180 degree turnaround it was incredible she became the best grandmother one could possibly have to this day everything about me stems from her because she was my mother's mother and my mother i attribute all my success in life to my mother so um when that happened that changed everything around and then we started to have a family unit uh two grandparents my mother myself my brother came along um, some years later and um did all my schooling in yonkers new york started off on the lower east side of manhattan for the first five years, then we moved up to uh, Yonkers, New York, and, and everything, K through 12 in Yonkers. And you know, Yonkers was just a, it was a hard place to live at the time. In the 70s, uh, there, were, there were political corruption issues, education issues, poverty, just, just the- Yonkers is a tough place. The, late, the lack of hope, yes, the lack of hope. Um, and then the crack epidemic hit and it just escalated everything uh, to another level. And you know, survived it all but because of some of the things that were happening with my friends on the street uh i decided that i wasn't going to really go out i was going to be in our apartment safe hopefully safe and while i was there i was going to just study because we were on welfare um first 17 years of my life were spent on welfare so i didn't want to live like that anymore and my mother was just an awesome woman, the love she gave to me and my brother. But, you know, being on welfare brought a, a quite a bit of shame to to me. And so I wanted to get out of that poverty. And that's what I did. So I, I can imagine the discipline that it took to stay inside, right? And to say, like, I don't want to go do that when probably all your friends are out there going and being outside and, you know, being kids, I guess, right? Yeah, and I, well, I had, and I had a combination of kids. So I had the kids on my block. Um, some of them were in the drug trade. Some of them were just outside playing. I just made the decision. I didn't want to go outside because there was a certain amount of danger. And I, hey, I spent a couple of years running the streets. But there was this, there, at some point I said, I, I got to put every effort I have into getting out of this poverty. And I made that decision at around 11. And, um, and so I surrounded myself in school with the smartest people I could find. And um, Luke Dokla was the start of it. And then Keith Zulo uh, in high school. Friends uh, to so, this day? Yeah, to this day. You know, they're, they're friends. Luke is in Poland. He's, he's a, like a compliance, the compliance director for IBM in Poland. And, oh, um, just a and, little job, compliance director for IBM, yeah. you know, probably top 10 guy in IBM. Not a big deal. Right. He, he graduated from the same law school as me. Uh, he went to Yale undergraduate then St. John's. He was the editor in chief of the law review. The guy is brilliant and a friend, a good friend. Um, and because of the, what I was surrounded by him all the time. So I tried to do everything that he did, even though I didn't have the brain power that he had just highly intelligent person. I couldn't even read really well. And I, I didn't tell anybody this until I was in my forties that I had this issue this deficit with reading. 
I just couldn't put words together the way my friends were. So I never read a book. I never, I, I read Cliff Notes. It took me probably four times longer to read Cliff Notes than it took them to read a book. And, and so I, but I surrounded, I did everything he did. I didn't do it as well, but I did everything he did in order to try to get grades. And I started to get good grades. I was an A student in middle school and then into high school. And I graduated number five in high school because I, I surrounded myself with Keith and Luke and some of these other folks who were just, these kids were brilliant. And Keith is like one of the best patent attorneys in the US now, Cornell and Cornell undergrad in NYU law school. And these are friends for life. I may not see them a lot. I haven't yeah, seen right. Keith for seven years or something. And I haven't seen Luke for 20 years, but they're friends for life. And, and so um, that helped me a lot. It gave me hope being successful academically, even though I was burdened by the shame of my childhood and the shame of not being able to read and the shame of having a white mother, being a black kid and being called zebra and Oreo on my block oh. and being bullied and all that stuff. But that also served as the impetus for me to work my butt off. So I worked like crazy academically because I had to in order to keep up with everybody. And I worked like crazy on my body. I, I worked out because bullies were constantly at me. Constant. From the time I was a little kid in kindergarten, bullies were at me because I was a puny little kid. And then I made the decision I was going to work out when I was 11, 12, around that. And then I started working out and I, be, I started to see results. And then I, I noticed I was a pretty good football player in the schoolyard. Yeah. And, and then and didn't play organized sports until I was in the eighth grade. I played football. And when I played football, I wanted to be Tony Dorsett. He was my inspiration. From Pitka. And Yeah, not, not a bad player. Yeah, right. And when, when, um, when I signed up for Pop Warner, it was a Colts club. Um, I didn't have a father in the house. And a lot of the kids had fathers who were coaching part-time. So when I asked to play running back, they said, no, you have to play nose guard. So I played nose guard. And all the kids who played running back, they were they're all their fathers. All right, the father kids, coaches yeah, kids. So, so I, I played nose guard and learned to be tough on the field doing that and was a pretty good nose guard. Um, but it wasn't what I wanted to play. So when I, when I, the next year I went to Gorton high school and Don DiMatteo, who's legendary in na nationally legendary, his brother, Tony is, was a high school NFL high school, uh, coach of the year honored at the Super Bowl. Uh, these, these guys have streets named after him. And so I, uh, Don DiMatteo's JV coach said, what do you want to play? I said, running back, but I said it, knowing that I wasn't going to get that opportunity because I was already conditioned to not be able to play running back. I was going to have to play something else that didn't get the, the prestige. Yeah. Right. The limelight. Right. And running back back then was like quarterback is now, Yeah, running, right. you, you know, if you were running back, you, that was a top position. Quarterbacks just handed the ball off to running backs. And so I said that and they were like, okay, go ahead and line up. Let's, uh, let's, let's do this. I was like, what? You, you're actually going to let me play running back? Yeah, you're going to let me do this? <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. And so I, I played running back on my freshman team. I, I started one or two games. I played a little bit. I didn't get the ball much. I, I didn't know what to do, really. I, I, I had no football IQ because I hadn't played organized football ever other than in the eighth grade. 
And so that first year was a learning experience. Second year, I was on JV again. I was a starting halfback. Um, I was starting at monster back too. And then I, I got hurt. And when I got hurt, I actually got beaten out at monster back by another player um, when I was in the, in the 10th grade. And I had a hip pointer and it just plagued me the whole season. Then, but I was working my tail off. I mean, this, this five, six years of working my tail off, I was running all the time. I was working out. I was, I was consumed by football and school. Yeah. And so when I hit the 11th grade, everything started to come together. And I was pretty fat. I was, I was, I was a little fast as a ninth, 10th grader, but when I, I ran track too, cause I wanted, I ran track to be a better football player. When I hit the 11th grade, everything started. It's like all of a sudden my hormones started to kick in. I started to become an adult. Almost. Yeah, right. and, and I just started to be a pretty good football player. And, and then, and then brought it into my senior scene. I was getting recruited by people after my 11th grade year. And then 12th grade is when it all came together. So then you're in BC and then you go to St. John's law. What made you, you know, what, what made you really want to go to, to, to law school? Well, I wanted to go to law school because I didn't really want to go to law school. Actually. You didn't want to go. My mentor, Jay Brussman was from the time I was 14 years old, he told me, you need to be a lawyer. You need to be a lawyer. And I didn't know what a lawyer was, but he's a lawyer. He just graduated Temple University School of Law and he took his bar exam. So he was inspiring me to be a lawyer. I didn't. So when I went to, I got the scholarship to go to Boston College. I played with Doug Flutie. I had that great experience. Got a degree in economics. And then I started to work as a bouncer because I couldn't get a job out of college. And that wasn't the way I had planned. I mean, I thought, you know, 17 years of welfare, I want to get a job. That's the, that was top of mind for me. And I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get any interviews. So I, be, I went to work as a bouncer at a club called 1018. It was the biggest nightclub in New York, 4,000 capacity. And I did that for about two years. And Jay Brussman got me a job with his brother-in-law on Wall Street with a small MedMal defense firm. And so I did that. And when I did that, I did it for like nine, 10 months. As I, as I was there, I noticed I'm not, I'm not like, I'm in the same category as these, as these attorneys. Yeah, right. They're not that much smarter than me. Uh, and that gave me confidence. So when he said at every, it was every week he was on me, you got to go to law school. You got to go to law school. So I finally just relented. It wasn't because I wanted to go. It's because he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop. It was every time I couldn't speak to Jay without him saying, first thing, so when you go into law school. And at some point, it just wore me down. And I applied to two schools, New York Law School and St. John's. And both, both of, you know, they accepted me. And, and so I decided to go to St. John's and did this. They had this two and a half year program. So I went through the summers and got out early. And then started practicing law. I passed the bar exam in New York and Connecticut. And I started to work at a MedMal defense firm in, uh, in Manhattan. And it was, it was a great experience. I did it for less than a year. But I, I, I needed that bridge from law school to the FBI. Because I had applied to the FBI when I was in law school. So and how did the FBI come, of, come about? How, did you become a, how do you become a special agent in the FBI? 
Well, they, they recruited, they recruited at my law school. I think 10% of the agents out of New York, uh, they say come from St. John's. So I, they recruited at my law school. Um, I looked at the, the, the requirements and I was like, well, I kind of fit this stuff. You know, the physical fitness, I was always physically fit. And then attorneys, they wanted attorneys. And so I thought, you know what? I, this, I didn't want to be a law enforcement officer. That wasn't my goal in life. When I was eight years old, I said I wanted to be a cop. That was just because of Starsky and Hutch and Beretta and stuff. <laughs> then I went through the crack epidemic and I was like, I don't want to be a law enforcement officer because they're coming to get us. They're the ones who are taking my friends away. But then I thought to myself, this is one way I could maybe help the system from the inside instead of complaining about it on the outside. So that's what I did. I, I applied. They had this pre-application. It's a long process. It took a year and a half for me. Pre-application, application, take the test, pass the test, then you move on and you go before a panel. If you do well there, then you can go to take the physical fitness test. They have a, a, an intensive me, a medical exam. Um, and now they have a polygraph. I didn't have to take a polygraph at the time. And then, uh, you know, after they do the background check, which was the last phase of it, they, they appoint you. And that's what happened to me. I, I got, it was the, it's the biggest blessing in my life that I got into the FBI. I, I still, it's, it's hard at times to believe that and I was an FBI agent. <laughs> he was a kid who couldn't read, and uh, I became an FBI agent. It, it was just a surreal experience. And I was undercover for two and a half of those four years. Great experiences. And, um, and I left to be a federal prosecutor when I was recruited by Chris Droney, who is now a retired judge. Uh, he was a U.S. attorney at the time, and he asked me if I'd like to come over and serve with him. And that's what I did. Pretty awesome. And then how did the uh, NFL come about? You were a senior manager of player liaison, uh, security specialist for the NFL, and also worked for the Jacksonville Jaguars as their player administrative community affairs, uh, uh, part of the community affairs team. How did those connections happen? Yeah, so when I left the FBI, the boss I had with the FBI got a job with the NFL. And so I was with, I was a federal prosecutor. I thought I'd be there for 10 years at least. And I get a call from Terry Schumard, who is a, uh, was an agent. And he said, you know, Milt just went over to run security for the NFL. You, you and he need to work together. So wh why don't you guys get together? And he's going to do some innovative things. And so Milt and I, Milt was my special agent in charge in the FBI. And he was appointed the director of security position for the NFL. So Milt and I spoke and Milt hired me. And, um, and that, uh, and then he took a chance because there were people at the NFL who didn't want him to hire me. He took a chance and I'm grateful for that. And he, and he hired me and I worked with players and all the way up to owners on off field misconduct issues. They were having some issues with the Dallas Cowboys at the time. Um, the White House, which is well chronicled in, you know, in our history, yeah. and Michael Irvin and some of the issues that were going on. So they wanted to take more of a proactive approach. Paul Tagliabue was a forward-thinking guy. And so he authorized Milt to, to create a position, really create a position. And I was the guy they created the position for. And I came in and I, 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 my job was to help to create 
uh, policy for off-field misconduct issues, but mostly to communicate in the way, communicate these policies to the players all the way up to the owners in a way that was going to be accepted. And that's, that's what, what I were did. some of the, what were some of the tactics that you use, right? Cause we talk a lot about this is a lot of the sales is not selling, you know, a product it's selling internally, right? So you had to make sure that the players were on the same page and the owners were on the same page and that, that message didn't get, you know, mixed up somewhere. What were some of the tactics that you used to make sure that your message stayed on track? And I didn't know there were tactics, but what I was doing <laughs> was I was just revealing myself. I was, I was, it, it, relationships, which is what we teach now, relationships are about genuinely expressing and exposing yourself, revealing yourself. And that's, that's what I did. I just revealed who I was. And then they would have, those who, who I was speaking to would have the, um, the inclination or not to accept it, accept who I was, to trust me. And I speak the truth. So I would just speak the truth. And I would say, this is what we're doing. This is what's in your best interest. So we'd like for you to buy into this. And that's, that's what worked for me, just being myself and revealing myself and talking about some of the things that were going on in society that would be challenging for our players. Uh, we, we were at a point where, you know, drugs and those things were uh, fairly rampant in sports. And so I had to convince the guys that this, those who at least were inclined to do it, that this was not the way they wanted to go. Their career was at stake, their family counted on them. Um, and And so that's what I did. I did it for two years and then was recruited by the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I went down to Jacksonville with the precondition that I was going to have an opportunity to work on the business side. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to work on the business side of sports. Um, what, what, and, what was that switch there? You're like, I wanted to do that, right? You were on the other, you know, on the legal side for so long. Why, why switch to the business side? What was the driving force of that? I saw that they were the ones empowered. The, the ones who made business decisions were the with the ones empowered in the league. Um, so it's like everybody else was a supporting cast to those who were bringing in money and, um, and taking care of money. So that's what I did. I went down and we, I worked with, did some player contracts. I learned the CBA. Um, that, that, that's a big thing in the league, knowing that CBA and yeah. being a part of it in some way. So that's what I did. Did you do that on your own? Like, I just got to go that, learn this thing. No, not, well, a lot of on my own, but it was taught too. Yeah. Um, and was taught and through experience was taught uh, because I was, I was negotiating contracts. I also um, worked in player, what was player programs to player development. Now it's player engagement. So I oversaw that. Um, that department and oversaw community affairs and at, at the at the team level everybody's a jack of all trades so you do whatever you you can do so on the football operation side did whatever I could to help and you know Tom Coughlin was the coach then we had great team teams uh, from 98 to 2001 with Mark Brunell, Baselli, Fred Taylor, Jimmy Smith, Keenan McCardle. I mean, Leon Searcy, some of, some of the, the Hardy Nickerson, um, Tony Brackens, 
uh, Kevin Hardy. We were 14 and two in 99, lost twice to the Tennessee Titans, and then played them again in the championship game. And we're, we were up at halftime and lost to them. The only three losses of that year were to the Tennessee Titans. They went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Rams. And, um, and, and while I was there, I was recruited by the NBA. And they were starting up the D League, which is now the G League. And they wanted somebody to run their team in North Charleston, South Carolina, which was going to be their flagship team. And so I did that with Alex English for two years and it was such a good experience. Uh, I was, I was on a business side of that and such a good experience. Number one, I met so many great people. Uh, the NBA has some fine people working there. I also became ingrained in the community in Charleston. I consider that to be a second home to me and my family members, these friends are family members there and I go there all the time. So great experience. But I got fired. And as, as, as Chris Palmer, former head coach of the Cleveland Browns and longtime uh, assistant coach in the NFL, said to me one day, and he, he recruited me to go to Colgate when I was 14, 15 years old. He was, he was coaching me at summer camps and all that stuff. He said, you are nobody until somebody fires you in sports. When you are in sports, there is – because he's a coach. He, you know, yeah, coaches right. just get hired to get fired, and so do players. Front office people, though? I didn't think about it in those terms. But when he said that to me, he was the offensive coordinator at the Jaguars when I was in the front office. And he sat in my office one day and just told me, you know, in this industry, you are nobody until you get fired. That means you, <laughs> you, have, you have longevity. You, you, when you bounce back, and, and that's what he, he did all the time. How many times did Chris Palmer get fired? Yeah, right. <laughs> Six, seven, eight times. I mean, 10 times. That's what happens. You, you usually don't leave on your own accord but um he he was such a good friend in that respect he gave me the truth and still is a friend he's at university of new haven as the ad now and so i was fired um toughest toughest day of my professional career perhaps because i never had been fired i didn't know what that felt like and so I'm, now i'm not wanted what do i do and i didn't have a great game plan i had a game plan because i started a media and marketing company when I was with the Jaguars, but I didn't have any clients really. I, I was, you know, I had it, but I, it, but I was working, doing some little things here and there. I wasn't prepared. I, I didn't transition extremely well, uh, but I did transition and it forced me to empower myself. And from that point on, it was all about empowerment. I wanted to be my own boss. And so for, for the last 20 years, you know, I, I, I have now a law firm, I have a media company, and I have a not-for-profit company, all of which I am called to, to action with. What you're doing now is incredible. And I think, you know, I, I kind of want to talk uh, about your dedication to community nonprofit here. Um, you know, you and I, um, one of the things that we were talking to pre before we got on here is, you know, I made a promise to our listeners uh, with my partner, Chris Valente, who does this with me, uh, that we were going to talk about social issues and we wanted to have an honest conversation uh, with different people, whether it's in the sports industry or just in, in general, right? And you kind of fall into both of those. Uh, and we wanted to just have an honest conversation about 
you know, uh, race, you know, I heard you said you were called zebra as a kid and like the impact that that's had. Um, I I want you to tell a story, if you don't mind, um, about the time that you were arrested for saying hello to a police officer and how that's changed your life dramatically. Well, I, I had a summer home in Newport, Rhode Island, and I talk about this in my book. Um, I, I had a, a summer home in Newport, Rhode Island when I was a young FBI agent, and I was coaxed to do it by some colleagues, and we would have the time of our lives up there in Newport. And one day after I worked, got off of work, I took the two-and-a-half-hour drive up, and it was on a Friday in, in the summer of 1994. And when I got there, I went to a party. And as I was walking to the party, a police officer called me over and, and uh, we were talking and then he just sat in nowhere and said, uh, I want you to turn around, put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest. And I was just stunned. You just waved to the, you just waved to the police officer, right? Just well, for... Yeah, it, well, I, I just waved to him. I said, thank you for your service because that's what I say to every police officer. My kids say it uh, unsolicitedly. And, and then he called me over and and when he called me over within six seconds, he told me to turn around, put my hands behind my back. I was under arrest and, and I, thought, I thought it was a joke. I thought my friends were playing a joke on me because they're really good practical jokers. But <laughs> this was not a joke because half of the Newport Police Department was out there. I, I didn't even see them when I was walking across the street because I was, I guess, laser focused on getting to this party. And so he put the cuffs on me, took my... I had a fanny pack on, took the fanny pack with, with my gun and badge and put me into the back of a cruiser that was right behind me. And I sat there for a few hours just waiting to find out what happened, what was going on. And I found out that um, a few hours earlier at the Marriott down the street, uh, a black guy puts a nine millimeter to the chest of a white guy and threatens him. And so, you know, I mean, you're in Rhode Island, you know in Newport, there aren't many people who look like me walking around the streets of Newport, Rhode Island. So they get me to the side and then find out I have a nine millimeter on me. They're like, we got our guy. Yeah, right. But I wasn't even in the state when that happened because they said it happened at 3.30. And I was was in Bridgeport, Connecticut with my special agent in charge debriefing him on a civil rights case that we just closed. It's very ironic. And so what it taught me ultimately, because I had no problem with the fact that they did this. I I would have done it to me too. Um, Because I mean, I I would think I have my guy, but they didn't believe I was an FBI agent. First of all, I mean, they were looking at my credentials upside down that they, they did not believe I was an FBI agent, but FBI agents do do some make some mistakes and do some bad things at times. We've seen that. Yeah. Not all, but a, a yeah, very yeah, small right. number do. And, and so, but when they, when they released me, they didn't give me my 20 seconds. I call it my 20 seconds. They didn't explain to me what happened, like what, why they did this. They just said, you can go now. We know you understand. And I was like, but why was it like this happened? Like, I didn't understand. No, nobody had compassion yeah. and empathy. And that, so that's one of the things I teach uh, when I facilitate law enforcement sessions is we talk a lot about compassion and empathy and giving people their 20 seconds. That's how you build relationships. And they missed out on an opportunity to build one with me. 
So did that experience help you, you know, you're a motivational speaker and an author. Um, you wrote the book, a survival guide, how not to get killed by the police. Was that one of these things when you're in the back of that cruiser for several hours, kind of reevaluating your life? Is this kind of where that all started or how did you become, how did you want to write that book? And I, and describe the book, please. Yeah. I, so I wrote how not to get, get killed by the police. It's, it's called a survival guide, how not to get killed by the police. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, this is it right here. It is right here, here on zoom. There you go. It's a 31 page, um, book. It, it's actually, it, it started out as an essay to my son. Huh. And uh, so I wrote it for my son because I was being stopped by the police on these drug interdictions going from Charlotte to New York and back. Uh, maybe once a year, I'd be stopped on an interdiction. And I wrote it as a result of those stops because the two minutes it took for the troopers and me to have this engagement and they left feeling safe and it was quick. Um, we thought it would be a good idea to put that in a in an essay to my or in a book to everybody, but in particular for my son. And my son wasn't born yet, but we knew we were having a, a son in the next six to eight months. Um, and so I wrote this essay for my son, and I was going to I was going to have this conversation with him when he turned eight years old. Talk about relationships, talk about law enforcement, talk about how to engage with law enforcement. Well, my son's eight now. And, and so I wrote this book nine years ago for him. And then at some point when the nation imploded with, you know, Michael Gardner and Sandra Bland and all the issues that were percolating to the surface, we decided we would release the essay as a book. So we edited it so that it would be consumable uh, for the public. And that's what we did. We released it as a book to the public and it gives tools to the public about how to engage with the police and we use it as a foundational piece to teach people about building relationships in general because the, the relationship with law enforcement and community is the most tense we have so if we can do that one we can do any we can build any relationship and in your um you're also training law enforcement agents where you're, um, you know, and, and working with like the Miami heat and the Miami uh, police department, what are you kind of doing in that? What are, what's your role in that? So we, we train law enforcement all across the nation and, and law enforcement officers from across the world. Um, I, I have the distinct honor to, to be an instructor at the FBI national Academy where we teach a course called Breaking uh, Barriers and Building Community. And it's a new course. We developed it, we deliver it with the FBI. Uh, the FBI is, is such a great partner. Um, Matt Rebuck is, is, man, this, this guy right here is so special. And he's, he's we're co-instructors for this course. He's an agent. And so we teach about relationships. How do we build relationships in life? And that's the number one issue in society right now is how do we get people to get along? How do we get to that place of harmony and connectedness and togetherness? How do we get to reconciliation? So we teach the steps to get uh, for people so that they can get to reconciliation. And 
We do this all across the nation with law enforcement. We do it all across the nation with corporate America, with not-for-profits, with academia. We even do it with incarcerated populations. So everybody is impacted by dysfunctional relationships, if there are, if they exist in one's life. We want to shift the dysfunction from dysfunction to functional mm -hmm. and build relationships that are meaningful, lasting, uh, sustainable relationships. And that's what we do. We don't teach tactically how to be a better officer. I told you I was in the FBI for four years. They know more in their thumb than I know. Uh, about <laughs> but I've learned from the best when it comes to relationships. My mother is a relationship person. She builds relationships like I've never seen before. And I'm 55 next month for 55 years. I've been building relationships as a result of watching how she does it. And so I consider my mother an expert at it. I've learned from the best. That's what we teach. Yeah, relationships is where it's where it's all about. And you know, you and I are just kind of starting our relationship. But you know, as a, in all honesty, as a middle-aged white guy, you know, one of the things is you know I'm starting to think about the question, you know, questioning the way that whether I've hired or the way that I have uh, approached hiring, really specifically professionally. Um, you know, one of the things that I was, I was just talking, um, we had another guest on, um, Amber Hudson, and I'm saying like, okay, I've got all these resumes in front of, in front of me. You know, I don't know if, you know, Quentin Williams is a, is a white guy or a black guy or, you know, how do I, you know, how do I become to make my organization more diverse? How do I be more inclusive when previously, like I wasn't trying to be uninclusive, but I think what I'm learning is I kind of was mainly because I wasn't putting additional effort to go find diverse candidates. I was just kind of getting whatever came in. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that, that's, that's the way we're conditioned. We're conditioned. So this is, this is, it's part innate and part uh, experiential because birds of a feather flock together. We, we do um, go to those who kind of make us comfortable, feel like ourselves, look like ourselves. That's, that's an innate quality to some extent. But the experiential piece can counter that or it can reinforce that. And so depending on your experiences, like with me, my mother would always gravitate to people who are not like us, hmm. like who just people who are just different in any way. So we were always surrounded by people who just this, this, this pool of folks who were just different. It was the melting pot that that was, our life was a melting pot, but you, you see a lot of folks who are, are brought up in maybe a monolithic community and that's what they know. So when they become adults, that's what they know. They surround themselves with it. I think our, our knowledge is power. So if we know that there is this world that exists that we are cutting ourselves off from if we don't experience it, and there's a lot to be learned and gained from being in that world, I think from a young age, we'll be open and that, that comes with training. Open-mindedness 
comes with training. So parents, grandparents, guardians, teachers, they have to reinforce this kind of training that it's a beautiful thing. Where we live in America, oh, it's beautiful because we have all these, it's a melting pot. We have all these differences. It's unlike any other place in the world. Yeah. That's, we need to take advantage of it. And so um, when, when you're talking about hiring practices, hiring practices start when people are kids. And if they, if they are comfortable with folks who don't look like them, then they're going to be comfortable as, an, as adults and they'll be comfortable as professionals with those people. And, and it comes down to not just including people, but people feeling welcome and feeling like they belong. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the part too, is where, you know, you know, we want to, you know, I, I want to make sure that we have as, you know, the most diverse, you know, from my part, sales staff as, as I, as we can. And, um, you know, for me is one day when we're able to go hire people again, post COVID, um, I'll be excited to kind of pick, uh, you know, be able to look at it differently since I've been having conversations with you and some other conversations uh, that I've had, you know, is I didn't realize this. Like, here's the thing that I didn't realize, um, you know, if um, a black guy might look at this office, the you know, I work for the Pawtucket Red Sox, they would go on our front office page and look at all the people and basically everybody's white. And I think, you know, baseball's got that problem in general. Right. Um, and then be like, that's not for me. And I'm going to go apply to a different job. And it's like, I, I never in a million years would I have thought that that's what would happen, but multiple, multiple people have said, yeah, that's what happens every day. And it's just like this eye opening experience to me um, that, you know, I've never would have had without having some of these kind of, you know, in all honesty, they're kind of awkward conversations for me. Yeah. And but, but you, you know, that courage of venturing out into spaces that you don't understand. First of all, that's what makes life so interesting is that there's always something to learn. There's always something new to do, new to venture out into. Um, but if you, there are some people who don't want to know, it's called ignorance. They, they make <laughs> right. conscious decisions not to know. And then there's naivete, which is an innocent lack of knowledge. It's You don't know because you haven't been exposed to it. But once you are presented with an opportunity to know, the decision is yours to make. Do I want to know this or don't I want to know this? And if you say, yes, I want to know this, now you're opening up your yourself and your world to all these other possibilities. If you say, I don't, I don't necessarily want to know. I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm happy where I am. I feel safe here. Now you're closing yourself off to that. So one of those things is what you just said. You know, there are a lot of people who are not just of color, but females and LGBTQ folks and you name it, who won't even consider applying for certain opportunities. These are talented individuals who won't even consider it in corporate America because when they see the optics of that industry, they, it doesn't give them any sense of belonging, any sense of welcome. So they say, I'm not, there's no chance I'm going to get it. So it's cut off at the pass right there. As opposed to seeing what you want to be, if they see you know, a diverse makeup, yeah, and they're right. like, okay, I have a shot. Let me, let me 
give this a shot. That, that's a very, very good observation you've made because it's true. Yeah, it's something that was mind-blowing to me, mind-blowing mind, mind to me. So I'll be, um, you know, as we kind of got to get to past COVID where we can start hiring people again. And, uh, and once we do that, you know, I'll, I'll definitely uh, change those type of, um, of practices. Um, Q, you know, I, as we kind of wrap up here, I'm, I'm kind of looking at different things. And, you know, it looks like you're going to be part of a ESPN undefeated piece on stop living, um, the stop living, driving and, and dying while black, you know, how, how have you gotten to these things, um, to these opportunities and, you know, what makes these things special to you? What do you, what do you love talking about? And, you know, what, um, you know, how does it feel to really make an impact? Cause our conversation today, you've been able to make an impact and now you've been able to make it more of kind of a national, national way. You know, I, I, this, so this is a calling for me. There's a reason why we have our journeys. Um, now the, the thing that we have to find is what our purpose is. Why do, have we had these challenges? Why have we had these successes? What is the reason? It's not to make money. That's man-made. What is the reason for me being here? Why am I on earth? And so I found it at about 45, 50 years old. I found my calling, my purpose. And that is to help to bridge divides that might exist, to, to help people to, be, to live in harmony. And so this opportunity came as a result of a relationship, as all these opportunities yeah, come Yeah, right. Relationships. Relationship. Yep. And I, and I worked with uh, Ryan Smith, is the host on ESPN. Ryan and I worked with uh, each other at the NFL office where he was an intern for a little while. And then he worked uh, at the Jacksonville Jaguars and I worked uh, there as well with him for a little while. So we know each other going back 24, 25 years. And now he's, he always told me, he said, I said, what do you want to do when he got out of sports? I said, what, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to be a host. I want to be a TV host. I was like, man, that's, that's great. It's great that you have your eye on, on your future and what you want truly want to be and here he is uh, a, a host he's been a host on cnn hln and now espn for quite some time and he just uh he texted me and said hey we're doing this special want you to be involved if you can be involved so uh you know any any opportunity whether it's a, an audience of one or it's an audience of 100 million i'm in because this is about saving lives. It's about lives thriving, meeting potential. All those things that I was given an opportunity to do in life, I want for everybody else in society. Oh, Q, you've been a, uh, you're an inspiration, man. And um, I, I, I truly mean that is, you know, uh, you know, you talked about where you came from and, and what you're doing now and finding your passion. And I call it, you know, finding your genius, right? You're a genius at this. And uh, I think, uh, I know that I really took a lot from today's conversation. I know uh, I'm confident that our listeners will as well. And uh, really thankful um, that you joined uh, me here today. So thank you a million times over uh, for talking with me here this morning. Rob, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And keep doing what you're doing. God bless you. All right. Thanks, Q. We'll talk to you soon. All right.